Uh, hello? Anybody there? Hi, thanks for calling TikTok Support. How can I help you? Uh, yes, I'm calling because I've had so many issues on your platform recently. I've actually now been permanently banned on your platform, my account. I was wondering if there's anything I can do to get that back up. Uh, okay, well, uh, can you give me the account name real quick? Let's take a look. Yeah, it's Amala Epinobi. Okay, Amala... Amala? I would have thought it was Amala. <laughs> Everybody does, don't worry. I'm sorry, I, I will probably get reprimanded for being culturally insensitive. <sighs> Anyways, um, let's see here. Well, it looks like you said some things that are not permissible on the platform and are not complying with the mainstream narrative. Well, what did I say? I'm, I'm so confused. Um, you are encouraging people to think for themselves. You're um, questioning tyrannical mandates, just all kinds of problematic stuff. That's really, you're saying you're not a victim okay. as a black person in America and that systemic racism doesn't exist. I mean, these are just very problematic. I mean, fact checkers agree mm. that uh, all those things are true. Okay. And so we've, we've run the fact check and so you're wrong. So we really just don't tolerate misinformation on our platform. So what do I have to do to get my account back? I don't understand what you're saying to me right now. Well, you could, um, first off, delete those videos and just come on our platform and don't say anything that doesn't comply with um, acceptable information. You are free to say anything you want on our platform as long as it agrees with the mainstream narrative. Okay, so I don't get my account back unless I subscribe to your belief of what I should think and then make videos about your belief about what I should think. Correct. I'm glad you got it. Okay. Anything else I can help you with today? I guess not. And scene. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Will and Amala Live, except Will's not here, so it's Taylor and Amala Live. Will will be in later in the show. We've got some interviews for you guys. But our skit today was all about social media, just one of the detrimental effects of social media, and that is censorship and this sense of conformity that people feel when they hop on these big tech platforms. The reason we did a social media opening is that one of our favorite YouTube channels, Academy of Ideas, has come out with a video called Social Media, Why It Sickens the Self and Divides Society. And we want to react to that with you today. Let's get right into it. What hath God wrought? These were the first words sent over the newly invented electric telegraph machine in May 1844. This message proved to be prophetic. For the communication technologies that followed in the wake of the telegraph, from the telephone to the radio to TV, computers, the internet, and now smartphones and social media, have radically altered the fabric of society. In this series of videos, we are going to explore some of the effects of modern communication technology use. For while remarkable achievements of human ingenuity, these technologies are a double-edged sword. Communication is easier than ever, but so too is the ability of governments and corporations to track and monitor us. The media and educational gatekeepers of old have been irreparably weakened by the rise of the internet and social media, which was a boon to curious minds. But these technologies are also being used to manipulate us through censorship and rampant propaganda. And while creating new possibilities for how we work, learn, and entertain ourselves, these technologies have an addictive side that promotes anxiety disorders and a wasted life. In the first... I'm going to go ahead and pause already. We're a minute in. Uh, yeah, that's something that I think we fail to talk about with technology, although it is becoming... Uh, a more prevalent conversation as social media rises and as the the narrative around big tech censorship uh, rises as well is there is a trade-off for for 
quote unquote progress and what we call it. And a lot of people look at social media and technology and they see it as nothing more than than our society progressing. But with that, there are caveats. And these caveats are the issues of censorship. They are the issues of propaganda and they are the issues of mental health, all in which coincide with the rise of social media. Yeah, I call it, I've said it before on the show, but I call it the Jurassic Park problem. Mm-hmm. It's which, that, that if you really read Jurassic Park with a critical lens, you'll see like the actual point of it is talking about, it, it deals with the technology problem, the problem of technology. You, he says you're so um, concerned with whether you could do this technological innovation that you didn't stop and think about whether you should. And here we are in a, with the new dawn of this uh, millennium and mm-hmm. out came the internet and shortly thereafter social media. And whether or not, whatever your opinions are of the internet and social media, they happened and they're here to stay. And people are using them and they have great utility for civilization. The question is, well, the fact is though, that we were not prepared um, as human beings to deal with social media. We were not prepared to deal with this brand new thing that we created um, in our own minds. And we didn't have laws in place, ethical standards in place for the companies that are innovating in these areas to really regulate them properly and to to prevent them from manipulating our brains and doing unethical things to make us dependent on them or allowing them to get too big to where they can censor censor and, and purvey misinformation or determine what truth is or determine what you're allowed to see online. And so the problem is that they've gotten the problem is not necessarily in it, techno, technological innovation is itself pretty neutral um, but it's how do we use that and then how do people that are opportunistic um, exploit that and then how do we fail to regulate them hold them in check um, so I'm not anti-progress and anti-technology I'm anti um, unregul like you know complete unfettered unregulation lack of regulation on these companies and you know we, we as conservatives we're very we're generally pro-free market and so the criticism mm-hmm. is always well you guys just want this cronyism to come in and you want the, these companies to be able to do whatever they want but that's not that's not freedom if they violate the spirit of the constitution mm-hmm. then they need to be held in check and so the question is how do we now create uh, bulwarks against tyranny through oligarchy through technological oligarchy in these major you know big tech companies controlling everything and suppressing speech and pushing a narrative which is what we're seeing today so anyway that's kind of my set up on on this and mm-hmm. my, how I generally view this problem. But I, I love just calling it the Jurassic Park problem because yeah. Jurassic Park's awesome. It fun. really is a Jurassic Park <laughs> problem. The little image that we have here on this video is, is perfectly uh, emblematic of what's going on with social media. It's like nicotine. You get small addictive hits of it and uh, it makes you feel great for a time whilst ignoring the, the long-term effects of it. And now we're starting to see those long-term effects as I'm sure uh, we will see later on. They will get greater and greater as social media grows. Let's continue a video of this series, we will explore how the use of these technologies, and specifically social media use, is altering how many of us answer the fundamental question, who am I? Our answer to this question, or the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, forms our identity or self-concept. How we approach the challenges of life, what we believe we are capable of, how we treat others, what we value, and even how we view the world. All are influenced by our self-concept, or as the psychologist Michael Mahoney writes, Like a spontaneous projector of different light forms and frequencies, our sense of self formidably constrains and construes the reflections of its own castings. It is an ever-present but invisible navigator or sculptor in a lifelong journey. 
The health or sickness of a society is an emergent byproduct of the health or sickness of the self-concepts of the people who populate that society. A society full of individuals with weak self-concepts. Self-concepts that are fearful of novelty, infused with helplessness, riddled by anxiety, plagued by self-hate or lacking in self-reliance, can only be a sick society. For one thing is needful, claimed Nietzsche, that a human being should attain satisfaction with himself. Only then is a human being at all tolerable to behold. Whoever is dissatisfied with himself is continually ready for revenge, and we others will be his victims. Oof. Utterly true. And this is something that's foundational to the human condition on its face without social media, without the prevalence of technology. We all grow up with these, uh, you know, inner turmoils of being uh, anxious and not knowing who we are and attempting to find our purpose and our place within the world. Social media has come along and exacerbated that feeling while also creating, you know, the SOMA, the Brave New World SOMA of, of sati satiating boredom and making people complacent. And that's a wicked cocktail for creating what they what they identify as a sick society. And he says that a person who feels that way and feels that anxiety and that incongruence with who they are in the world and what they feel like they are is automatically going to lash out with at other people, which is why we see this strong bullying on the Internet that is really unknown to any other part of the world other than being online and of course that's that's our anxieties and our insecurities showing themselves and being exacerbated exacerbated by social media yeah and it's fitting that they they quote nietzsche because one of his most famous lines is the whole the prediction of the externalities associated with what happens when you when you pro, he proclaimed god dead and then he said but he was he was pointing that to as a sort of harbinger of the the fact that now that we have killed God and the traditional Judeo-Christian moral framework and the ideas that undergirded Western civilization and progress um, and the values that undergirded it, um, now we have to replace that. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, God is that we have killed them. And so what are we going to replace those with? And what have we really lost? And we don't really understand it. And part of that is this identity. And the, the Judeo-Christian framework has, it teaches that you, you are an individual made in the image of God and you are created with infinite value and worth because you're made in God's image. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a sense of identity inherently um, just on its face, you know, by being made in the image of God. That's in like the first few lines of Genesis. And by removing that, now where do humans get their source of identity? And uh, the new the new sort of modern interpretation and modern spin on where you get your identity is 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 from yourself. Whatever comes up out of you, whatever feelings mm -hmm. come up out of you, that we, we need to affirm those. Whatever um, whatever you want to identify as, we just need to say, yes, that's you. And, and we've sort of replaced right. a, an, an external... Um, God who can give you identity with an internal, you are God, and whatever you want to be um, is inherently good and needs to be affirmed. And there are consequences to that. And especially when, you know, I don't want to live in a world where I'm God because I'm limited and I'm fallible and I am unstable and I can be affected by things like social media and mm -hmm. I can be affected by things like peer pressure and heartbreak and uh, I'm subject to I'm you know I'm fallible yeah. and so if if you if we replace God with humans or you know if I set myself in the position of God I'm not sufficient to 
uphold the world and mm. create a world where uh, things work and I'm they're stable and they're reliable and I can have hope when difficult times. Instead, um, if our world is just everything's about you and yourself, then yeah, it's that is very destabilizing. And then you add social media in there, and it just it, it, we constantly have um, a mirror on ourselves, and we constantly are trying to portray something to the world because we need the world to affirm us because we don't yeah. have affirmation from God. And this is what you end up with with a a world full of insecure, um, unstable young people who are like just looking for somewhere to plant their feet on firm ground mm-hmm. um, in order to have a sense of identity, meaning, and purpose in the world. Yeah. Totally. I mean, we talk about the dangers of echo chambers. Our social media profiles are essentially echo chambers for each of us, individualized echo chambers. You've now got in a space where you can hop into this echo chamber at any time, post a picture of yourself, a video of yourself crying, I don't know, a video of you playing music and immediately are garnered with support from the people who choose to follow you. And with that comes an amount of power and privilege that is dictated by how many people follow you and how large your echo chamber is. And As much as we talk about the dangers of a social credit score, like we've seen in Australia and in China and and in North Korea, we we have social credit scores. We have a voluntary 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 social credit scores in our pockets. And it's wild because it's true. A lot of people say, well, no, that's an unfair comparison. It's not a social credit score. It is a social credit score. Uh, Taylor gets treated differently than me. I get treated differently than Will. And a lot of that basis is just simply placed upon how many followers we have on our prospective social medias. And that is a strange thing. It's a strange thing to watch that develop. And I- I've gotten to watch that uh, through my own experience of never having a social media following before, never being super uh, invested in social media, and now suddenly being invested in it and also have a following. And it, tr- it changes how people treat you your social credit is re- really does go up uh on on the basis of how many followers you have it's really strange phenomenon yeah and what the problem is too the young young teenage kids you know especially mm-hmm. girls learn this early on and attach their sense of self-worth and value to how many likes they get yep. and how many followers they have and so then you're it's this soul killing process of exchanging your uniqueness and value as a person for likes and so the you compromise yourself morally or you just do or you 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 stop having an identity and even if it's not you know you're um, swinging your butt out or whatever mm-hmm. on social media just to get likes uh, for being promiscuous you can still just play the like oh I, I gotta go travel and I gotta go do all this cool stuff and right. I gotta buy new clothes and I gotta go take these influencer style photos on Venice Beach mm-hmm. or whatever it may be and you're just you're chasing a sense of meaning and purpose and identity when uh, it's much it would you would be much better off knowing and understanding that you have that and that God created you uniquely I mean in a Christian framework you would say um, and you you need to uh, find that in yourself and find that in him and not need to go to chase a sense of purpose and meaning in uh, likes and followers and there, there's nothing there there's no gold at the end of that rainbow and uh, it is you're setting yourself up for a very shallow and disappointing existence that is very volatile you'll yeah. have no stability what happens when um, instagram purges your followers or you don't get as much engagement as you used to or you ran out of money to buy new outfits or can't go on as many trips you're just posting trips you know it's like it's this and do you really want it's a it's like an avatar of your real self too because you're just putting these pictures and highlight reels out there mm-hmm. and people are more concerned with managing their digital self it's like the matrix like your your mental image of your digital self and right. your 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 
your real life and happiness is your real life. This is your real happiness. You, you only get one uh, ability to have meaning and one chance at finding your happiness. So if you stake it all in your digital life and you're not having it any, at all in your real life, you're setting yourself up for a very miserable existence. And unfortunately, that's becoming increasingly the norm these days. It is. Let's keep watching. Let's find more. Our self-concept is in continuous development and it is the product of many factors, including our upbringing, education, biology, environment, interpersonal relations, and intrapersonal experiences. But one of the most important factors in the shaping of our selfhood is the predominant identity formation mechanism of our society. To understand what an identity formation mechanism is, we will examine the two mechanisms that preceded the rise of social media, namely sincerity and authenticity. Sincerity prevailed in the West until a few generations ago and was based on the idea that one's identity was intimately tied to a set of social roles. These roles were not chosen by the individual, but given to him or her by family and community. One's identity then emerged in the attempt to play these roles in a sincere manner. In earlier times, identity was typically assigned by the social roles one was born into. Along with birth came not only one's gender, but also one's tribal or ethnic identity, one's social class, one's profession, and one's religion. In the 19th and 20th centuries, greater social mobility and more equality of opportunity unleashed a newfound freedom of self-expression. Predetermined social roles of class, gender, religion, and ethnicity declined in importance, and the identity formation mechanism of sincerity was replaced by authenticity. Under authenticity, one discovers, realizes, or creates one's identity, and so selfhood formation becomes an individual's task. For some, this proves to be a blessing as it unlocks possibilities and potentials that are stunted when one is expected to sincerely conform to predetermined social roles. For others, it is a burden as with freedom of self-expression comes responsibility for the self that is created. But a strange thing has occurred with the rise of social media. Many people are reverting back to a mechanism of identity formation that resembles sincerity a mechanism of identity formation which Hans Georg Mueller and Paul D'Ambrosio in You and Your Profile have termed profilicity. Like sincerity, profilicity is other-directed and reliant on the reactions of an audience. With sincerity, one's family and community are the audience that casts judgment on how sincerely or properly one plays the predetermined roles. With profilicity, the audience is a generalized peer group consisting of hundreds, thousands, or even millions of social media users, and this audience plays a somewhat different role than under sincerity. Not only does the audience judge the identity one forms, but it also helps shape the very roles one strives to play. That's an interesting thing to have to think about uh, with the rise of social media that we <laughs> used to. And it's a lot to take in yeah. that we used to just focus on our, our, our dearest friends, our family and our community. And that shaped who we were as a person. We got the responses from them and it dictated, OK, maybe that was wrong. Maybe this is right. Maybe that's not who I am. Maybe this is who I ought to be. You know, there's a, a large difference between who we are and who we ought to be. But now we are taking with us uh, the lenses of tens of thousands of people telling you who you ought to be and all saying it in a different sense. So now you have to calculate, well, the majority of people are telling me that I should be this. I'll get the majority of likes. I'll get the majority of praise. I'll get the majority of perceived love from the people who say this. So maybe that's who I ought to be. And at a young age, having all those different opinions 
uh, infiltrating your young mind has got to be super confusing whether they know it or not. Yeah, and it's like where who is forming the opinions or what's how is the consensus around formed by all the abusers of social media that like how do you get a sense of what I should be performing toward? You mm. know, um, I think you you see it like the way people look up to celebrities and like their their favorite influencers on TikTok and try to emulate them. You see it in um, echoing the narratives that that you they see in the mainstream media. And it's like what what you should live into is and the, there's an irony here too of. Um, the the second one that they talked about, what was it? The sincerity and the authenticity. And the authenticity is, um, well, it's what I was talking about before. Whatever comes up out of me, I have to be true to myself. Mm-hmm. My identity is just being, being me. And the the irony of like um, needing to perform for the social role, and yet in our culture today, we're preached so much of this, you know, this authenticity stuff, but no one really believes it, or they're like you're. It's like a warped version of um, yourself, and so it's like, well, my pronouns are z zer. We see these mm-hmm. crazy TikToks about that are like a minute long. Someone explaining to you what pronouns are because that's that's in theory what's coming up out of me, but really I'm performing toward that because that's sort of the cultural expectation is you're supposed to have these pronouns or whatever. So what's your unique way of being true to yourself that culture is telling you how to be true to yourself in? You know what I mean? It's like this juxtaposition. And we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing it morph a lot. I mean, when, when I was experiencing the rise of social media in my late teens, social media was very much the highlight reel of everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. It was your, it was was more straightforward back then. Right. But it was straightforward in the sense that I know I'm just getting the happiest parts of your life. Like I'm seeing your boyfriend, I'm seeing your trip to Cabo. Maybe, maybe your relationship is not as great as it seems, but on social media, everything is is cookies and cream and and now i think with our younger generation social media has morphed to now we're getting all parts of everybody's lives i'm filming the fight that i get into in the line at dunkin donuts i'm filming my cry after my boyfriend cheated on me but i'm also editing it and putting sad music over it (laughs) oh after that because i think we recognize that social media was the highlight reel so we get okay it needs to be more raw but even so it's contrived and performative and people know like young girls know the pretty girl crying about her boyfriend treating cheating on her and putting sad music over it and saying like this is what he lost out on. I can't believe it. I did everything for you. They know it's going to get a million likes. So it's still performative, but in a sense, it's even more traumatic and detrimental to to mental health because now you're filming these horrible parts of your lives that are also real but performative. And Right. It's like your own real life is just a place to get material um, right. that you can use to write your digital person and your digital self that you're projecting online and so this real thing happened to me now how can i play that up and write it into the narrative of my myself online right we're like all little stand-up comedians like searching for life experiences that can be twisted into funny videos or twisted into something that people want to watch uh yeah no we've uh, we've witnessed social media become much more raw than it used to be much less of a highlight reel more of a slice of life uh post i guess i don't know yeah and it, well it's interesting too the way that you know tiktok is an extremely powerful tool because it it democratized and made into and democratized the ability to make video content and then it made it bite-sized so you can just scroll and watch a million of them all the time so what happened is like we're saying people are using the material from their own lives to write their tiktok feed version of themselves and they're they're basically playing like script writer or screenwriter um and 
writing the narrative and putting it on and they have the ability not just to be the screenwriter but also the cinematographer mm -hmm. and the editor and then the, the publisher and the marketer of their of their own lives and you're you're marketing yourself and yeah. hoping that people buy it and like uh that affirm you for you know i don't know participating in this culture and living into these predetermined identities it's a very weird and and fascinating world i mean like and what's crazy is like this whole ecosystem and this whole faux digital reality mm -hmm. is taking precedence over people's real reality and it's not about um who's actually in your life and your like your actual relationships and your actual experiences and your actual growth trajectory and how you find meaning or anything like that their their whole world is in this little scripted yeah. thing that they're making. I like the point that you make that you are quite literally marketing your life. You are looking at yourself and you go, well, I'm a middle-class white 14 year old girl in America. What is the best way for me to portray the, the real life experiences that I'm having in a performative sense so that people want to watch it and they want to watch it by the million so that I can make money and make this my career. Yeah. And it's much more interesting and dramatic if I reject the traditional ideas of what a white 14 year old girl is supposed to be in America. So let me dye right. my hair blue and pick a gen, you know, 10 gender right. pronouns and, right. then, you know, talk about all the ways that I'm oppressed and that we're, you know, and shame people who are not, um, not woke enough to, yep. to call out systemic racism and stuff because that's a much more meaningful path than just being a normal upstanding citizen who is uh, pursuing an education and being taking responsibility for themselves like that's so boring by comparison so yeah in this shock value the little, little mini Hollywood world why not write a different story for myself where I can get much more pats on the back and much more likes and follows and all that type of stuff it's exactly right it's weird okay we're gonna keep <laughs> watching that's a lot it's a lot to take in for profilicity entails creating profiles on social media through the selective display of pictures and other bits of information, or in a more passive manner merely observing the profiles of admired personalities and then using these idealized profiles as roles to play in real life. Or as Jeremy Weissman explains in the crowdsourced Panopticon, a simultaneous exchange occurs between the two entities, our digital profiles and our in-real-life self. As we broadcast idealized portraits of our in-real-life self online, we then in turn adjust our in-real-life self so as to meet with popular approval when we are broadcast online again. At a certain point, our in-real-life self and digital profiles practically merge. Forming an identity through the mechanism of profilicity has serious drawbacks. Firstly, it promotes an unhealthy degree of conformity. For to succeed in the world of social media is to conform, as a successful profile is measured by metrics such as likes, shares, and follows. But profilicity necessitates not just conforming to the preferences of one's peer group, but also conforming to the standards set by those who manipulate the algorithms of social media. Or as Weissman writes, Through the ever-increasing gaze of a pervasive audience online, we may become overly pressured even coerced toward collective opinion. As social media's mechanisms of likes, dislikes, friends, and followers constantly subjects us to the crowd's judgment along with that gaze. By promoting a hyperconformity, profilicity limits our potential as the generalized peer group of social media users and the manipulators of social media algorithms have no interest in many elements that comprise a healthy sense of self. With profilicity, if we step too far out of line, if we are too unique, or if our value system diverges too far from what is deemed acceptable, 
we will be shunned, shamed, and ostracized. That's a good place to to, to stop, I think, and mm. continue to talk about it. Yeah, we forget that the people behind Google, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, all of these uh, social media platforms and uh, search engines, they are people. There are people behind them. These uh, algorithms are not just little computer robots that put together uh, content based on purely your personality and the, the, the cultural norms of the time. They are biased. Uh, in fact, in a study done on Google and their, their biased search engine results, they could uh, do left-wing and right-wing bias in, in the search engine results with 95% accuracy, uh, meaning accuracy in actually changing somebody's minds or morphing somebody's perception without them being able to realize that there was bias in their searches. 95% of the time they can trick you into believing there's no bias in what pops up after you search uh, something on Google. The same goes for the algorithms of, of TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all these other social media platforms, and they're well aware of it. And of course, there is a pressure to conform. If I go on Twitter today and I see a bunch of leftist news giving me the same uh, dogma and doctrine that the left always does, telling me I should subscribe to this belief. Of course I am. I will see all the likes that it has. I will see all the support that people get. And I will see the shunning and the ostracization of people who go against that grain. And I will not want to, I would not want to uh, associate with that person. So of course the, the people behind this, the big tech overlords are truly the puppet masters in this entire situation. Yeah. And I like how it said you um, the, that this the whole system enforces compliance and it incur incentivizes you to comply and it punishes mm -hmm. you for not complying and like if that doesn't describe the society we're living in right now yep. like I don't know but it's but the American system the original American um, values and ideas encourage individuality and they encourage you to flourish as an individual to take responsibility for yourself and your family and find your place in your community and do your civic duty to uh, you know serve the interest of, of of the country and and to uh, assert yourself as an individual and find your place in society and find your place by going creating something of value and and and, and you know now we have people expecting value to be dropped on their laps while they sit at home and mm -hmm. be, be given um, checks from the government. And the, the whole incentive structure has been, you know, we'll take care of you, take your Selma, get on social media, we'll give you the government check and make sure that everything's fine. Just support us and comply and everything will be fine. And it's it's killing a, a soul of our generation and, and where people don't even remember why freedom was important in the first place. And that is that is what's so scary about the moment that we're seeing right now. Yeah, why should anybody have to be exposed to something that they find that they deem offensive or that hurts their feelings? And if there's an algorithm or a person that can take care of that for you, why would you not ask them to take care of that for you? Uh, and again, that it goes back to freedom and what Dennis says and what Taylor says that liberty is a value, it's not an instinct. Uh, and when we feel that challenged, I mean, uh, if somebody's on your side, of course, you're going to go with the person that's on your side. And right now, big tech and the overlords are on the side of the left. And of course, they're going to keep perpetuating that. And I think there's a there's a reason for this, too, because the idea of being taken care of, like Dennis mm -hmm. says, is it's a powerful idea and a powerful narrative to fall into. And uh, like Carl Jung says, said 
it's a quite crazy quote that's blown my mind, but it said like, uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Mm. And it's, you know, people who, even if there are puppet masters behind the strings, like pulling it all, they still need a powerful idea and a powerful story to tell you that yeah. they can get you to buy into to keep you from thinking for yourself, from poking holes in the narrative. It's like the 1984 thing. You know, they want you to be the compliant person or the Brave New World thing where you're just taking the pill and, and living along. But how do they get you to buy into that? Like the, the Brave New World one, is about voluntary compliance. It's about you just take the soma um, and pleasure yourself however you want to, and you'll be taken care of, and all that. Just don't question anything, and just do what you're told. And um, that is setting you up to lose your freedom. But we're living in a time where, again, um, we're forgetting why freedom is important and valuable in the first place. And if they can get you to believe a story where freedom doesn't matter in the first place, and you can just trust us, um, then they'll buy into it. But they need that powerful narrative and that powerful story that you know you can be taken care of this is all for the greater good this is all for the for the good and we've seen that through history that um, regimes like uh, in Soviet Russia in communist China that they, they tell these stories through the population and get people to, to buy in and then they the people who are bought in will um, help enforce compliant the compliance on those who are non-compliant and anyway that is strangely what we're seeing today in the United States, even and across the Western world, vis-a-vis um, -vis Australia. Right, right. So this is not to say don't use social media or social media is the no. bane of our existence. There are several horrible things that come with social media. You can use it as we do. I mean, it's the name of our game. It is our it is our job to do it. Uh, but keep it with these sentiments at the forefront of your mind. This is always important. It's important uh, the lens through which you use things. And you should operate with social media through this lens. If you are a parent right now, make sure your kids operate social media through this lens uh, because it's always something to to keep in mind now you can watch this video again it's by Academy of Ideas on YouTube the title is social media why it sickens the self and divides society and yeah it's a conversation we should have more than we are having it right now considering most children teenagers and a lot of adults are using social media and spending more time on social media than they spend on any other part of their day. And that's a crazy, crazy thing to think about. Uh, guys, the show's not over. We've got some interesting guests on the show today. Robert Kiyosaki and Chloe Hudson. We did some interviews from them. You'll recognize them from our short documentary, Trading Up. It's all about trade schools versus colleges and universities and how the college and university system has failed the modern day American. We're gonna start off with Robert Kiyosaki. You know him from Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Let's get right into that interview. On the program today, we have very special and acclaimed guest by the name of Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, who's also a financial educator and guru and has made himself a name in the space doing as such. Robert, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm honored. I love you guys. You're, you and I are on the same team, different, you know, same mission, everything. Fantastic work you guys do. Thank you. Thank you, man. That really means a lot. It's it's nice to know that, you know, someone like yourself, who people probably wouldn't always consider in the same sphere of influence as PragerU, they wouldn't munch us in or munch, put us in together in one group. But to know that you're a supporter and 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 with what we're doing really means a lot. So in, in terms of that, I think one of the reasons why we really get along well is because of our emphasis on 
you know, maybe the university education in America right now isn't the path that people need to necessarily take. There's a lot of other options. You know, I dropped out of school after two years. Amala, I don't even think you went to school. At I all. did go to school. I dropped out as well to start working here. So Amala <laughs> dropped out as well. And it seems to be like, and now more people in, in just the normal space are getting homeschooled instead of going to traditional schools. What is your take on this? And what are you seeing as kind of the new cultural revolution when it comes to education in this country? Well, uh, education is the most important endeavor or study regardless if you go in school or not, that you can undertake as a human being. So the reason I like Prager University is the clips you guys put out and now that are real education, they're free, and they really educate. It's um, what you guys do and I do are the same, in the same, we're in the same business. But education is more important before, but now it's a death trap. You know, for so many people, they go to university, they get loaded with student loan debt, then they can't find a silly job or they can't, can't even pay back their student loan. Talk about a bad investment. I have a, I won't mention his name, a friend of a relative. He now lives in his parents' basement. He's 40, year, 40 years old and the family's really proud of him because the guy is 40 years old and he's working on his second PhD. And, and when I said to him, PhD stands for poor, helpless, and desperate, uh, the former won't talk to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes a lot of sense. I, mean, I, I get why he wouldn't talk to you anymore, because I, I think that university education and this type of, let's say, quote unquote, traditional education in America has has been seen as a substitute for wisdom, a substitute of, of true knowing in the world. It seems like people can say, oh, I got all these different degrees, or I went to this incredibly prestigious university and spent all of this money and say that that in, somehow inherently makes me more equipped to handle the world than somebody else. Do you see that kind of same stigma? I asked about my whole family are PhDs. Mm. If you know what I mean, I come from the Teachers Union, the NEA, National Extortion Association, <laughs> of labor unions. And labor unions are Marxist. That's why Marx says, you know, uh, workers of the world unite and they join labor unions. I'm not against labor unions, but I'm saying that the problem with educators is they think that piece of paper makes them smarter than you or me. I have a PhD. I mean, I don't have a PhD. I have a Bachelor of Science in Naval Architecture, of all things. I've never used it. I'm glad I got it because it got me into flight school to fly for the U.S. Marine Corps. But I really didn't need a degree in Naval Architecture to become a Marine. You know, if you fuck a mirror, you can become a Marine. <laughs> So do you see our education system shifting at all? I, I know there's a small uprising happening among students and professors who are refusing to go along with this narrative and allow the indoctrination in their schools. Do you think that our university system and college system will change or people are going to start searching for routes like yours and getting education uh, independently? Well, I'll just say this much. I have a Bachelor of Science degree. Mm -hmm. I never did any of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned everything from my rich dad, who was my best friend's father, who didn't go to school. And he taught me playing Monopoly. And you know, <laughs> we all know the formula for great wealth is four greenhouses, one red hotel. So today I own red hotels. I own 8,000 rental units. I have businesses, you know, but I never used my degree in naval architecture for some reason. <laughs> 
Right. It speaks to the worth of a college education, I think. <laughs> education is important. The question is, if you have that PhD, does that make you smarter than anybody else? Answer is no. No. My poor dad and my rich dad was richer than him, who had no degree. So how do you measure? Look, how do you measure success? This here's my cash flow board game. It's called a financial statement. You see, when you go to the bank, this is what the banker wants you to see. This is your report card when you grow up. So somebody asked me the other day, you know, I'm a billion dollars in debt. And most people are taught when they go to school to get out of debt, but they don't realize that money is debt. Money became debt in 1971 when I was in Vietnam. So today I use debt as money. The average person shouldn't. But the reason I can borrow so much money is because I have one of these. This because of my cash flow board game. So if you understand that, I use debt as money. I don't recommend it. And because I use debt as money, I pay no taxes. Now it drives most of these PhDs crazy. Well, I have a PhD. What have you got? I said, I've got a financial statement. What have you got? So these are two different statements. One's a financial statement, one's a PhD. Would you rather have a PhD or a strong financial? In 1971, you were talking about, I mean, that's when Nixon got rid of the gold standard. I'm, I'm fairly sure that's when a lot of things changed in this country. So the last, when I was on your show, you told me to read this book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. I'm showing it here for everyone. This book, this book was a life-changing book. I mean, seriously, I took so much from this book. And then I, I even went afterwards and I, I watched a lot of speeches that uh, the author gave and things that he talked about. One of the things that really struck out to me about it is is something where he's talking about you know most normal people when they hear about the federal reserve this book talks about how the federal reserve should be abolished and after reading this you really don't have another choice when you find out the truth than than to say that that's true but one thing that he talks about is that we leave these kinds of things these kind of discussions about the federal reserve and money and and taxes and inflation we leave this up to the quote unquote experts, because it's supposedly too confusing for any of us to know, right? It's too, it's too above our, our shoulders and none of us can actually figure it out, figure it out. And I love that he talked about that because I think that there is a, a ploy in this country that kind of goes along with the education that you were just talking about, where people will say, you know, you need to let the experts and the PhDs and these types of people, they're the ones who know about money. You know, if you don't go to college or any of these things, don't worry about money. Leave that to smarter people. You see that kind of same culture right now in America? Yeah, exactly. And that book by G. Edward, G. Edward Griffin, The Creature from Jekyll Island, fabulous book. Because what most people don't know, the Federal Reserve Bank is not federal. It's as federal as Federal Express. It's a banking cartel. It's the third fe federal, it's the th uh, third central bank America has had. Washington, President Washington uh, warned against it. Jefferson warned against it. You know, Rand Paul rep speaks out against it. And so I'm coming with a new book if I can shamelessly plug it. It's called The Capitalist Manifesto. In The Capitalist Manifesto, I quote Marx and Lenin who say the best way to kill capitalism is via a central bank. And this is the Fed is the third central bank, and we're now going bankrupt because of the Fed. Now, the good news is the Fed is making me richer because when you look at a financial statement here, 
this is where most college grads come out. They want a high paying job. I'm a capitalist down here. All I want are assets. Then I use debt to buy assets. That's why that book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, is crucially important because as Jim Griffin points out, in 1913, the Fed was created the third time because everybody tries to get rid of them. And in 1913, the IRS was created, the tax man. So what, what you learn from the creature from Jekyll Island is for money to exist, fake money, fiat money, the US dollar, there has to be taxes. Do you think about that? So the reason I make I can borrow a billion dollars tax-free is because the government needs me to borrow money because that's how money is created. Now, if you save money, you're taxed on your savings. Think about that. So debtors get money tax-free. And then I, when if I buy assets like real estate and stuff like this, I pay no taxes. Taxes are your single largest expense. So that's why the creature from Jekyll Island and Rich Dad Poor Dad and my new book coming out, The Manifesto, is you better understand debt and taxes, which is what happened in 1913 when the Fed was created. The Fed was created in 1913, and the tax man, the IRS, was created in 1913. And the facts are America was founded as a debt-free nation in 1773. It was called the Boston Tea Party. And now this woke culture or cancel culture, they want to change the start of America to 1619 or something. And they're trying to say America is a slave culture. That's not true. The real fact is in 1773, the Boston Tea Party led to the American Revolution. America is a tax-free nation. And that's why everybody's been trying to get rid of the Fed. Ron Paul says, and the Fed. I agree. I totally agree with that. I mean, we were able to do it before. I mean, Andrew Jackson got rid of the central bank before. That was that was around during that time. I mean, that's why everybody hated Andrew Jackson. You're treading on hot water there, man. You're, Andrew Jackson is hated by the woke culture. Right, exactly. Exactly. He, he, for a lot of the same reasons. But something, if you guys aren't understanding, I just want to point this out real quick about what the Federal Reserve does, okay, and why it was created, according to this book, which is, again, a great read that you guys should check out. The Federal Reserve essentially makes it so that big banks in this country can gain interest on nothing. They get interest on no money, okay, because the Federal Reserve is not a bank. They can write a check and have no, no savings or anything, and they can write checks for however much money they want, and then banks collect interest on it. It also makes it so that the big banks in this country can get bailed out, and also other corporations happen in you know, the 1970s with the railroad companies, other, other types of, of companies, that they can get bailed out by the taxpayer at any time. And also the inflation caused by the Federal Reserve is a free tax for Congress essentially to continue to get money from you and you not even know that you are being taxed through inflation. That is what the Federal Reserve does. And it is it, reading this book, I mean, and, and hearing about it, it is truly disgusting that we are in a place like this. And the report card of the Federal Reserve, you know, people will say that it's 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 around because it stabilizes the economy. It, look, it does the exact opposite of stabilize the economy. Look at our economy. Look at our debt. Look at look at how the middle class is shrinking. It is the exact opposite of what it should be. So, so let me add to that. In my book, Capitalist Manifesto, not only is it killing the economy, it is killing communism. Remember, it was Lenin who said that the establishment of a central bank is essential to killing capitalism. And in 1971, 
Lenin all Lenin said when you the, the the way to kill capitalism is to debauch the currency. And that's what happened in 1971. So if you really study history, you'll see that we've been warned over and over and over. George Washington warned against the central bank. Thomas Jefferson warned against the central bank. This is our third central bank. It is not central. It is not federal. It's as federal as Federal Express. It's a privately owned corporation by a bunch of rich bankers. That is exactly what it is. And I, I hope that more people can wake up to this. Again, don't think that these things are just for the experts and the economists and the Harvard PhDs to understand. I mean, you can know these things just by doing the research and actually getting a good education. I think through PragerU and through your books and, and all of the other things that you talk about online, I mean, I think that people can really do that. Self-education is key. I always tell people that, that you can't just go on Twitter and, and on social media and expect to know the news of the day and, and, and think that you're going to be a, a well-rounded, holistic person. You really have to dig a lot deeper to find out things that are going on. And so I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of that education with us. Thank you very much. Keep up the great work. On today's show, we have a very special guest by the name of Chloe Hudson. You may recognize her if you've seen our latest short documentary, Trading Up. She is our keystone in that documentary, and she is an experienced welder and trades woman, which is something that we don't typically get to see. Chloe, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Chloe, before we, uh, you know, talk about your your stances on college versus trade school and all that, can you tell our audience your story? Uh, well, it's not a short one by any means. I guess nobody's history, especially if they've been in uh, this industry or any industry for 10 years. I've been welding since I was 16, 17 years old. So that's 12, 11, 12 years. Um, I started in high school wanting to be, even before that, I wanted to be in healthcare. I wanted to be a surgeon. As I kind of made my way through HOSA, got my platinum seal in health sciences, I shadowed general surgeons and kind of settled on plastic surgery being where I wanted to land as far as the medical field. Um, it actually started with my grandmother. She had a melanoma on her nose and they removed her nose and the reconstruction was really poor. So, you know, facial plastics, anything that had to deal with uh, cancer patients is really where I wanted to go with my career. And I'm very driven to the point where I had nothing to do my senior year. You know, I already had my platinum seal. I was set up. I was ready to go. Going to go to EKU for college. Um, so my senior year, I had to do something that wasn't just weightlifting. <laughs> so uh, I had a 98 Jeep Cherokee at the time and all my guy friends could wrench on them. And I kind of missed the boat on that because nobody in my family was really mechanically inclined. Everybody was very artistic or athletic in my family. Um, so there was no one I could kind of learn from when it came to mechanic side of things. And, you know, a high school boy doesn't have the patience to kind of teach you anything like that. Um, but we needed a welder, you know, we wanted bumpers, we wanted accessories, we wanted to, to fix things and change things and modify. So I said, you know what, my senior year, I'll weld. It'll help everybody. It'll be something cool. Hopefully I like it. I had a great teacher. Scott Hightower was my teacher at um, Hamilton Career Center. And he was definitely an integral part in making me feel like this could definitely be a career for me. You know, he let me know that I was one of the few who picked it right up. My attention to detail, I was very meticulous. I was very focused. You know, I, I didn't really... 
care about being the only girl in class. I, I was, my competitive streak is too, too intense. I get blinders on and I want to be the best that I can be at something. And, you know, I kind of blame that on my dad and having two little brothers who are equally competitive. Um, from there, I continued my medical path after I graduated high school. Um, and hated it. My clinicals were actually at the VA, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a terrible place to start. Right, terrible. Right. The, the way they treat patients there is just, it was horrific. I couldn't do it. I couldn't see myself spending, you know, four, five, six, ten 10 years, especially if I was specialized. I, I couldn't do it. Um, and I went back to vocational school. So that summer I spent doing clinicals because I'd like to go into nursing. I wanted to work my way through college. So I was kind of doing like the like a dual credit situation. Um, so I kind of figured that out in the few months I was there and said, that's not for me. I really enjoyed welding. I really loved it. Let's try this. Mm. So I went that route, got a lot of pushback. I, I wasn't very confident in myself as a woman or the skills that I brought to the table. So when I got offered a job doing maintenance and nuclear and traveling, I took it. I took it, ran with it, made good money. Um, and it gets to be a point where you're sick of doing the crappy jobs. Like, I, you know, I'm one to never say no to a job. I, I, I love working. I will crawl under a tank. I'll clean it out. I'll paint this. I, you know, I'll take the paint off that. I'll, I'll work with anybody. And, and I worked with HVAC. I worked with pump guys. Ironically enough, the only group at Oconee Nuclear Station I didn't work with was welders. Everyone else <laughs> I worked with, but <laughs> didn't work with any of the welders. But uh, during outage time, you know, you'd see these big, nice, fancy trucks and paper tags. And you're like, man, what do these guys do? And it was craft. It was, it was, it was specialized tradesmen. They were, they came in, they came in for one job, they were good at it and they got paid and compensated for it. So I was like, Hey, you know, I've already got a background doing this. I've already been doing it on the side, you know, fixing things that needed to be fixed. And I jumped back into it two feet. I went to college. And that's something that people have to understand too. I went to a trade school mm-hmm. and it wasn't a four-year school, but I still got a two-year associate's degree that I paid for out of pocket while working. And it it allowed me to graduate with certifications that majority of welders don't start with. So that's a, an important distinction to make that I got real world education and real world AWS certifications that were recognized by every entity across the United States. So I graduated with a leg up on my competition because even if they had experience in the fields, uh, they still weren't qualified in a manner that I was. So I went back to school, graduated cum laude and uh, got my degree in applied sciences. I had my major was welding. From there, I went and built uh, dry cast storage fuel containers. So spit nuclear fuel, what they house that in. I went immediately from college to building those canisters. I went from that to uh, turbine refurbishment in the hydroelectric field. Mm. So we would go in, tear down turbines. The vertical turbine unit at uh, Bear Swamp is the one that I worked on and rebuild it from the ground up. And then from there, I got offered my dream job at Joe Gibbs Racing, Joe Gibbs Aerospace, which is where I am now. (laughs) So, yeah, it's been a long road, but it's been great. (laughs) Do you find that even though people had these 
negative reactions of you doing what you're doing. You're like, I'm going to drop out of school and go be a welder and do all these different things and go to trade school and all that. Th that even though people had those negative ideas about what you were doing, do you think that almost some of that, that negativity or the, the lack of support that you think you had in a sense like that drove you to, to go and do what you do? Uh, not really. I mean, I still get pushed back to this day. I get negativity on a daily basis. I get it from people I work with. I get it from people in the field in general. You're, you're going to, if you ever rely on outside resources or outside opinions to influence what you do in life, you're starting yourself behind the eight ball. If I, for a second, took in what people had to say around me, I wouldn't be where I am. There, There isn't, people don't have vision for you. You have vision for you. You know what you're capable of. You know what your life experience are. You know what you're willing to work hard for. And outside people don't have that. They never will. They're always going to be biased to what you are. And, you know, I always, I needed at least one person on every job site to be in my corner because you have to, you know, with when I come on site, immediately I am the threat on site. Immediately I'm the one that can go to HR. Immediately I have control of your job if you say the wrong thing to me. Mm. And unfortunately that has been groundwork that's laid out by women who've come before me on job sites and set a really bad precedent. You know, women who, who wanted attention from one person got it from another and it was a, a problem. Um, the Me Too movement did me no favors, <laughs> you know, no favors mm. at all whatsoever. You know, I took a job and no one talked to me for six months except for my oversight because they were so terrified that I was there to take jobs. Um, and it's it, it's constant. It's it's a constant battle that will never end because men and women are different. And it's it's something that I did knowingly. I, I knew it was going to be difficult, but I wanted the job. I wanted to make more money and this is how I saw fit to do so. And I did, I, I've climbed the pay ranks. I've, I've climbed that scale because of my experience and because of what I've done. And I'm not going to take it back. You know, it's, it's not going to change for me just because of someone's opinion. <laughs> Are you married? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, cause I wasn't sure if like, you know, this is a, a male dominated profession if you were kind of the breadwinner of your family or whatever it might be it's kind of an interesting dynamic when it comes to all of this if anything it's it's been very difficult in the dating pool you know i'm very lucky to have a a, a companion now that loves what i do he's into it he he absolutely builds me up and and you know he's introduced me to people at lincoln electric in his field we have you know, crossover people as far as sponsors go and, you know, has always been the first person to put me, you know, in front of someone who could help further my career, which is extremely rare because, you know, prior to meeting him, I, I was single for two years on the road by myself. You know, I went to Massachusetts. I moved to North Carolina. I, I've, I've taken jobs in Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Georgia. I, it didn't matter. I was going to take a job if it paid well. And I was on the road by myself. And, you know, guys think they want this kind of girl. They think they want this rough and tumble. We have a lot of the same interests. You know, we have things we can talk about. And a lot of times the em emasculating nature of the fact that I look like this and can still have that conversation is a conundrum men don't want to decipher. 
They don't want to deal with it. And so if anything, it, it kind of really hurt me in the dating field, but it was great because it, it, it made me wait until I found the right person. And I, I didn't have to wade through all the crap, <laughs> you know? I think it would be quite romantic for, like if you guys weld each other love notes or something. <laughs> he drives a race car, so it, he lets me fix it when it breaks on the weekend. So oh, I guess no, it's no, about as close as it see, gets. That's, that's incredibly That's sweet. the romance of it all. Exactly. Well, Chloe, there's, there's got to be other women and young girls who are just like you and who are probably experiencing the confusion of being pushed into going to college and traditional university systems. What is your advice to those young women? My advice is try different things. You know, I'm a product of my environment in that I tried a lot of different things. I've tried a ton of jobs. There's, um, I am a serial workaholic. You know, mm -hmm. this is until I really established my career. You know, I worked at the nuclear power station, but I also worked at an urgent care facility because I still had love for the medical field. And it was a way for me to earn money and get experience in a field. And it was a backup plan. You know, my resume A was industrial sector. My resume B was medical sector. So uh, I've always, you know, made it a point to be a student. Never stop being a student. Never assume that you know everything about everything or everything about one thing, because you'll never know everything that there is to know about one thing, even if you're an expert. You know, there's a lot of people who'd say I'm an expert in my field. And man, I learned something new every single day. But as a woman specifically, don't let an industry change you. You know, the old saying, you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar is very true. In, in a trades field, you have to rely on others to teach you your craft. So if you go into it with an expectation that people are going to be sexist or people are going to be mean or people are going to not give you the time of day, well, you already know that. So why are you going to ex exacerbate the problem by making yourself unapproachable, un unrelatable, because you can break through those thorny exteriors and absorb information if you're willing to be open to it. And, you, you know, there's, we live in America, like there, there's no better place like to, to, to venture out, to try different things. If something interests you, try it. The first place that I tried welding was in my friend's shop when he was trying to replace injectors on his diesel truck. You know, he had a, an old stick rod that looking back now is hilarious to me because I'm like, this thing hadn't been in enough years and this is probably the worst possible way to learn how to weld. But it, it gave me an idea of what the heat was like. There's sparks, you know, there's this is a puddle. This is fusion. This is lack of fusion. It gave me this idea of what it could be like to learn more about the subject. And and I got very lucky that it was something that I really honed in and loved. But as far as it goes, just anyone really i mean it's this field is hard for everybody men women mm -hmm. it's hard for everybody <laughs> like there's right. there's it's, it's difficult but I, I just don't put yourself in a box and and don't come into things with with a chip on your shoulder and be really receptive to knowledge and information by people from people amazing well thank you so much chloe if you guys are listening to chloe right now and you want to hear more from her again she's the keystone of our newest short documentary called trading up and it's all about trade schools versus university and college and chloe is a testament to what trade schools can do chloe is there any other way that people can support you or follow you 
Um, I'm Arcloading Angel on Instagram. That's my only social media platform as of yet. So there, that's about it. Make it easy. <laughs> Fantastic. So give her a follow. We'll put her socials down below in the description. And again, Chloe, thank you so much for being on Will and Amla Live. We appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, guys. <laughs>